This is the question that I ask at the beginning of lesson four, which is the Old Testament lesson. When I say the word Old Testament, what comes into your mind? So I've now taught this class a lot of times, and so I've got a lot of data on this question. And uh, I can even look in my binder, and I've got all the answers that people, that people said. And so I've learned over time that I think when people hear Old Testament, they basically think of two different things. Either people think of the Old Testament as a bunch of disconnected stories, um, short stories, almost like Aesop's fables, and each one has got a nice little moral point, almost like you would design it to teach to kids in Sunday school. So it's, you know, Adam and Eve, and Daniel and the lion's den, and Noah and the ark, and Abraham and Isaac, and it's just all these short little teachable lessons, and each one has its little point you can take away. Disconnected little stories. That's one way a lot of people think about the Old Testament. The other way is people think of the Old Testament God as being this wrathful um, God of judgment and, and power, and he's pouring out lightning and fire and thunder, and kind of like a scary God, like the God of law, instead of the loving, kind God we've learned to know through Jesus in the New Testament. So these are basically the two approaches. It's a bunch, bunch of disconnected little fables uh, or stories, or it's this looming view of God. Uh, which one is correct? Well, the answer, of course, is neither one. Um, there are a lot of stories in the Old Testament, and some of them are very short, and some of them make a good, easy Sunday school lesson. Um, however, they're all part of one big story. And they're not fables. They're not made up. They're real things that happen to real people. And some of them are quite intense, like Daniel getting thrown into a lion's den. Maybe not the ideal story to tell kids in Sunday school, but a real story of how God saved somebody in really tough circumstances. So there are stories, but they're all connected into one narrative. And then God does show his wrath and his power in the Old Testament. It's true. But far more than that, far more than that, he shows his mercy and his love for people. So as I teach this lesson, lesson four of our Bible Basics class, where I ask this question, what do you think of with the Old Testament? I have one simple goal for this lesson. It is just this. It's to help people to see the Old Testament as just one connected story. And that it is a story of God's love and forgiveness for people. So that story begins in the Garden of Eden, when the world is new and fresh and it's still perfect, there's only two people living in the world at this point in time, uh, Adam and Eve. But then an evil fallen angel called Satan takes on the form of a serpent and slithers into that garden and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, the whole human race is now pulled into rebellion against God. So how does God respond? He does not respond with wrath and punishment. God's response is a promise that he is going to send a savior who will take all the consequences of our sin upon himself so that human beings can be forgiven, so that human beings can be reconnected with God. God makes that huge promise right away because that's the kind of story this is. It's a story about free forgiveness from a God who loves us even when we don't deserve it especially when we don't deserve it. And after making that big promise, what the whole Old Testament is then, really, is it's just the story of how God went about bringing that Savior. 
It wasn't quick and it wasn't easy. It involved thousands of years of human life and developing civilizations and emerging technologies and the rise and fall of nations and every type of twist and turn you could possibly imagine. And there were times in the Old Testament where it seemed like God's task of bringing a savior was going to actually be impossible. And yet he did it. At the very right time, God sent that savior and the savior did exactly that thing that God had said that he would do. So the Old Testament covers dozens and dozens of generations of human history, and yet they're all connected. They're all part of God's perfect plan, and they're all part of this one big story of God's love for the human race. So all generations are connected, but that's not how we tend to talk about generations, right? Like in our modern world, kind of our micro-analysis of just the last couple generations within the last century, uh, this is not how we like to talk about generations in a unifying way at all. What's way more fun and way more popular is to pit one generation against each other, right? Those pesky millennials with their avocado toast and their lack of desire for home ownership. Um, or those annoying baby boomers who inherited this amazing economy and then just plundered it and ruined it for the rest of us. Or these tech-addicted Gen Zers who have the attention span of a goldfish and all they can do is sit on their phones and they can't have a real interaction and haven't mentioned Gen X because they don't like to be mentioned and they just lurk in the background. So you know how it goes. Um, you've read these articles and it is kind of fun and it is kind of true in some ways. But I think while we could point out the differences in thinking between these different generations, it's also true that on the biggest topics, we are all way, way, way more alike than we think. It might not be a generational thing. It might just be that when you're 80, you think differently than when you're 20. But on the biggest issues of life, we are far more alike than we think. That's true for us and for our generations. That's also true for the people of the Old Testament. So in our first reading today, you guys heard Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. It was this scintillating list of 42 names. I know you were on the edge of your seat and you were like, nice, I love this part of Matthew. I've practically memorized this part. So since you have, I won't read every single one of those names and who was the son of who, because I know you know it. Um, but skipping past the names, which realistically maybe we recognize like four of them, and we don't know who these people are, uh, here's Matthew's analysis of it at the end. He says, thus... So, by the way, he's dividing this up. He says there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So, three even chunks, 14, 14, 14. Three eras, if you will. Let's call each one of them like a macro generation. And each era, each generation has its own blessings and challenges. It's a different time of the world. It's a different time of civilization. These different generations had different tendencies, which we'll talk about what was going on at Abraham's time versus the time of the kings. But all of them are woven together into one cohesive story. It's a story of God's love for the world and God's plan to bring the Savior. So here's what we're going to do in Advent over the next three weeks is we're going to go back to that genealogy and each week we'll take one third and we will look at 
what God did during this generation and this time, and then we'll move to the next one and to the next one. So we'll review the whole Old Testament, but we'll dig into each generation, studying their distinctives. And as we do, we'll find out that our God is not just the God of the boomers or the millennials, the patriarchs or the kings. He is the God of every generation. Every generation is God's generation. And we were reminded of this then today in our second reading. That second reading came from uh, Second Peter. And it said this, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Have you guys heard that verse before? Can you raise your hand if you're familiar with this verse? Okay. So this is a, a verse that I think a lot of people know, but it maybe gets misinterpreted sometimes. The, the point of this verse is not that God is oblivious to time and God like can't keep track of it, right? God knows the difference between a thousand years and a day. But the point of this is that God has unlimited time and so God has no problem using vast lengths of time to bring about his promises, he might choose to accomplish something over a thousand years instead of a day, and it's going to be better and deeper and richer because he did it the right way. Um, God takes the time because he has the time to not only make things happen, but make them happen exactly right. For us, it's very different because we're mortal. We know our lifespan is limited, and so we're very impatient because we want to see the results while we have time. God is eternal. He has all the time in the world. So, Peter goes on, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient, because he has all the time in the world. And this, maybe in a nutshell, could be like the theme of the Old Testament. God is patient. He made this promise to send a savior and then he spent thousands of years gradually putting the pieces in place to fulfill that promise in the exact perfect way. So let's start at the beginning. Here we are in the Garden of Eden. Looks really nice. Looks way better than our current world uh, because it was, but it didn't last for very long. Right? Adam and Eve fell into sin as we discussed and so now we have this sad picture where Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden and they could no longer live forever on this earth because they'd fallen into sin. But before sending them out of that garden, God had given them a promise that a savior was going to come to crush the serpent's head, to undo what had been done, uh, to rescue human beings from our problem of sin and to reconnect us with God again. Right away after the first sin, God had given the first gospel promise. But now what? Well, the world was still brand new, right? Human civilization was at like a level zero. I don't know if anything had been invented yet. Writing had not been invented yet. How could God ensure that this promise that he's going to send a savior would be passed down to generation after generation? Well, it's fascinating. The way that God solved this problem was by using incredibly long human lifespans. So Adam had been created in God's image to live forever, and after he fell into sin, he's still incredibly healthy. So Adam lived, the Bible tells us, for 930 years. And the Bible lists another fascinating genealogy of names that probably most of us are not familiar with, but the longest number in there, the world record for human lifespan, is one of Adam's sons named Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. 
So these big numbers just kind of boggle our minds, but you think about it. The year that Methuselah died was the year of the flood. That means Noah and his family, as they got on the ark, they knew God's promises because Noah had talked to a guy who had talked to Adam. So this is how God did it, through these incredibly long overlapping lifespans, even though there's no written scripture yet, the oral record is just one or two generations old. Then the flood happens, and for some reason, I don't know if something changed in the environment, the human lifespan drops way down after the flood. Noah is the last person with a super long life. He lives to be 950, but that's old enough that he very possibly could have met the next major character in the story, which is Abraham. In Abraham's time, because it's been a couple generations, God makes a reappearance and he talks directly to Abraham. And what God does is he takes this kind of loose general promise that there's going to be a savior and he tightens it up and he gives some specific information. The savior will be born from Abraham's family, out of all the families in the world. By the time that it happens, that family is going to have grown into a large nation and that nation is going to be occupying a promised land which at this time is called the land of Canaan. God says, there's the land, Abraham. Your family is going to go inhabit it. Go ahead. So Abraham trusts God. He moves to Canaan. And sure enough, his descendants grow into a large family. But they're not a large enough family to rule all of Canaan as a nation. And so through a series of events, God leads them to Egypt. And in Egypt, they grow from a big family into a massive nation. Over a few hundred years, they're they're now a couple of million people. And the Egyptians make them slaves, but God sends a prophet to deliver them from slavery, to say, let my people go. And the name of that prophet is Moses. Maybe this is what he looked like. Not certain. But you can see he's leading the people and letting them go. So God leads the people back to the promised land, following Moses, and along the way, they make a stop at Mount Sinai where God does something incredibly important. Alphabetic writing has just been invented, and so now, for the first time, God writes his law down for people so that it can be copied and passed down and not just word of mouth. God doesn't just write down the Ten Commandments, but he writes an entire law code for their society. He writes them a whole worship system. And also in writing, God now puts down again and again these promises that he is going to send a savior through these people. Moses leads God's people to the brink of the promised land, and then under the leadership of Joshua, they take it over. And a little bit later, under kings like David and Solomon, they really expand the size of the kingdom, they fortify the borders, they build an epic temple for God, and now the Israelites are kind of ruling the ancient world. It's, it's their golden age, so to speak. So now we take a step back and we might think, all right, it's time for the Savior to come. Abraham's family has become a great nation. They're in the promised land. The ingredients are there. But even though physically those ingredients are there, spiritually something is is missing. Faith is already slipping. Even in the golden age of the kings, like King Solomon, um, idolatry is taking hold. The whole nation of Israel is starting to sink into this worship of idols deeper and deeper all the time. And this is where we move into the time of the prophets. As God's people are increasingly being led astray into idol worship, God sends people like Jeremiah 
or Ezekiel to warn them that if they don't repent of their idolatry, they're going to be taken into exile. But the people refuse to listen. And so over the space of a few hundred years, God allows his people to be conquered, and then virtually all of them are deported to the land of Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq. And so you can imagine how devastating this era would have been for the few Israelites who are left trusting in the true God, because now they've been taken out of the promised land again. They're thinking, how is God ever going to keep his promise? It's been thousands of years, and we're no closer than where we started. But God knew exactly what he was doing. By causing this terrible challenge to come into the lives of his people, by exiling them, God caused them to turn their hearts back to him. They set up a system of synagogues for studying God's word and teaching it to their children. Uh, God sent them more prophets to share more promises about what this Savior was going to be like. And after just one generation in exile, God allowed his people to come back to the promised land. And now, even though they were fewer in number, now they had all of these ingredients in place at once. Abraham's family is now a large nation. They're in the promised land. They have a consistent faith in God. They even have God's word written down to pass on. So surely this is it. It's got to be time for the Savior. Except in God's endless patience, he's not quite ready. There are two small details God wants to put in place first. Number one, he allows the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great to conquer the entire world. Number two, he allows the Roman Empire to conquer that entire world and take over everything. Again, God's people are thinking, what is God doing? Because now the promised land is this province of Rome. I thought we're going to be a kingdom. I thought God's going to send a king. What is going on? But once again, God knows exactly what he's doing. Thanks to the size and dominance of the Greek Empire, It's the first time in history that the world has really had a consolidated language of Greek. And then, thanks to the size and dominance of the Roman Empire, the world now, for really the first time, enjoys widespread peace and security. Safety of travel, a highly advanced transportation system. The Roman world was a world where a piece of exciting news could travel very, very quickly and it could spread everywhere. Including, for example news like a person who had risen from the dead. So this was finally it. Now God was finally ready. After 2,500 some years of history, the Apostle Paul says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God could have done it faster. God could have done it messier. God could have done it differently, but God chose to do it the way that he did it so that when Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, and rose from the dead that one time for all human beings, God put it in the time he did so that it could have the maximum impact. Right? Civilization had progressed, technology had improved to the degree that the message of the gospel, gospel could spread across the world like wildfire, and it did. Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire within two, three hundred years after Jesus' resurrection. God knew exactly what he was doing, and he took his time to get it right. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient. And really, in a nutshell, that could be the theme of the whole Old Testament. 
God is patient. It could also be the theme of our whole world and our whole life. God is patient. So what is God now, now that Jesus has come, what is God being patient for? Well, we talked about it with the kids. We talked about it in our second reading. God is patiently waiting for the end of the world. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. You're going to have the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. All of this sounds like something you would maybe avoid and not look forward to if we did not have this last verse. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And when we do read about that home of righteousness, and when we do envision a world where there is no more suffering, and there is no more pain, and there is no more death, we do start to look forward to it. In fact, it starts to sound so good that we kind of think, why can we not just be there right now? What is God waiting for with this broken, struggling world that we live in? Well, God tells us exactly what he's waiting for. He's waiting for more people to hear the message of their Savior so that they can be connected to him through faith and so that they can join us for eternal life in heaven. The Lord is not slow still today in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So why has God not brought this broken world to an end yet? Well, it's for the same reason that God hasn't brought any of our lives to an end yet. He still has work for us to do. God wants to use us and our lives to reflect and share the love that he has for all people. It's like Peter says, since everything is going to be destroyed in this way and the new world is coming, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to that day of God and speed its coming. We don't have to be afraid of the day that our world is going to come to an end. Because by God's grace, we understand that his son did come into our world, in our history, in our time, to die on the cross for our sins and guarantee for us an eternity in his world. The perfect life of heaven where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Also, by God's grace, we understand that as long as we're living here on this earth, we have the privilege of getting to be God's messengers, using our words and using our life to share with other people the undeserved love that God has shared with us. And so, when you look at the whole Bible as one connected story, as we've done, you realize something. You realize that we aren't really that different from each other, are we? Boomers, millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, early world patriarchs, ancient kings, the shepherds in the fields at Bethlehem, Christians in modern day Atlanta. Whatever our cultural differences are, whatever things make us different are not nearly as important as the things that unite us. We've all fallen into sin. We've all been rescued by God's own son, by God's grace. And we're all waiting Whatever era of history believers are in, we're always waiting. 
waiting for our perfect God in his perfect timing to finally fulfill all the rest of his perfect promises. And if there's one thing that we learn from the whole Old Testament, it is this. God might be operating on a different timeline than we are, but his promises are always worth the wait. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.